We'll see about that. Uh, it's very, it's very great that so many people are producing videos that are, you know, mocking the Jew world order, and uh, it's. Uh, I don't see how they can actually survive this. Uh, there's so people are waking up so fast. Not that we're getting any power from waking up, but we're waking up fast. So the resistance has to be growing. And the more the resistance grows, the tougher it'll be on Rothschilds. Anyway, welcome everybody. Pastor Eli James here. And this is the Restoration Hour. Okay, you will eat the bugs. You will eat the bugs. And uh, and like it, right? And you will pay, you will own nothing and be happy. Well, we'll see about that. Uh, we have a different agenda. And we know, of course that we win the war, but uh, we still have to be very, very patient. We may have to, uh, how should I put it, stand aside while the Jew world order self-destructs. At the very least, we have to keep our powder dry and uh, have a lot of prepper-type food ready to go. I've got uh, several barrels full of it. Uh, I hope I don't need it. But if I do need it, I've got several barrels full of it. The kind of the, the kind that you you uh, crack the package and it heats itself up. Okay, who knows? Who knows how? <laughs> Every once in a while, I grab one of those and see if it still works and still if it's still edible. Right? Uh, actually, I should do that in the next couple of days or so to see if uh, they really are still edible. But uh, I think I could make a, 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 at least six months. With the supply I've got, maybe more. But I don't think the food supply is going to be really uh, totally destroyed. And I think the attempt by the Jew banksters to control the world economy is going to fail because local economies will survive. People will have no choice but to go back to local economies. And like right right here in Arkansas, there's no love for the the Jew banksters here. And uh, a lot of identity people around here who know what's going on. And a lot of ex-military and ex-police officers who know what's going on. So this is one area that's going to be very difficult to overthrow. We'll see how In fact, they just recently tried to build a housing project in honor of George Floyd. The corporation actually broke ground on a piece of property to the northwest, no, sorry, the northeast of Harrison, Arkansas. But local citizens rose up in protest against it, so I don't think it's going to happen. And even if it did happen, it might not last very long. <laughs> okay. So be ready. Yeah, JT. Yeah, uh, I've got plenty of water, even though most of my water is frozen. You know, I get the uh, gallon-sized jugs 
Uh, actually, I get them from Dollar General because I like the way they're packaged better. They have handles uh, that uh, you can uh, ho easily hold. And uh, although the uh, ones at Walmart are cheaper, and uh, you know, but uh, if you have distilled water or spring water, I think you're fine if you have either one of those. So anyway, let's get into tonight's show. I've been actually wanting to do a show about this book for the longest time. It is one of the best economics essays ever written. Although the one uh, about the, oh, what was its name? Uh, 1789, the, the economics of the French Revolution. And um, I can't think of the author's name, but it's a very famous book about economics and how the French Revolution was all about socialism and how socialism doesn't work, okay? Uh, maybe I'll think of that uh, title as we progress during the show. But this book is, and let me put it in the chat room again, uh, Heritage Site. Barbara Villiers, History of Monetary Crimes by Alexander Delmar. And the reason why Barbara Villiers is being featured is because she is the mistress to Charles II. And she was instrumental in procuring the Bank of England uh, power over the British monarchy. Okay. So um, I don't know if you've had a chance to look at the uh, video that uh, Free Jeff Person and I did about the history of uh, fractional reserve banking and how it goes all the way back to Egypt and the way the way it actually worked. The original bankers in Egypt were pimps for the priestesses. They they were they were priests who had uh, you know a, a temple, but they were using the services of priestesses who were nothing but prostitutes. So the temple priests were pimps and the the, the priestesses were prostitutes. And uh, those priests made a lot of money, and they stored the money in the basement of the temple, and the basement of the temple became a bank. And that system uh, moved from Egypt to Assyria, and from, East, uh, from Assyria to Babylon, and in Babylon, it developed into the fractional reserve banking system because the banker priests realized that nobody, you know, because people would store their gold, in the vaults, and they realized nobody was coming back to claim the gold. So the receipts they were they were handing out in those days it was clay tablets type receipts. Thousands of these have been discovered. Uh, they started using these receipts as uh, you know medium of exchange instead of so since nobody was coming back to claim their gold from the vaults, these uh, Jew banksters hit on the idea. Well, let's print, let's make. I guess you could say print, and you have a stylus, you have a clay tablet that's still wet, and you have a stylus that you, that you print numbers on and letters on, and that becomes a receipt. And these receipts began circulating as money, because whoever got that receipt, it says pay to the order, on demand, uh, such and such, whatever that receipt is worth. And, of course, the same type of language is still on our dollar bills today, right? And when we had... Um, Gold-backed and silver-backed money, 
uh, you couldn't have rampant inflation because the banks were law-bound to give you silver and gold for your paper money because it was backed by silver and gold. In fact, the reason JFK was assassinated was because he tried to reinstitute government money, not bankers' money, but government money backed by gold and silver. Okay? And that would have put the Federal Reserve Bank out of business. That's why they assassinated him. But let's get into it. And this, uh, like I said, this is one of the more outstanding books on economics ever written. And there is a, uh, like a brief introduction here. The History of Monetary Crimes. The book provides fascinating insights into the early years of currency speculation. Bribery and corruption, insider dealing, usury, money laundering, and other monetary crimes engaged in by the British East India Company and the City of London bankers. Are you interested? Does that whet your appetite for more? The book was written by one of the most eminent historians of money and precious metals of the 19th century and focuses on the financial chicanery of British and what is Jewish international bankers, and traders during the Tudor and Stuart periods. Okay, and we're talking about the institution of the Bank of England, which is a totally Jewish operation, always has been. The official title is Barbara Villiers, or A History of Monetary Crimes by Alexander Del Mar, formerly director of the Bureau of Statistics of the United States of America, Mining Commissioner to the United States Monetary Commission of 1876, author of A History of the Precious Metals and A History of Monetary Systems, one more, The Science of Money, etc., etc. So this guy knew what he was talking about. Now, I need to figure out how to navigate this site, how to turn the page. Here we go, next chapter it says here. Okay. But I would have to, even though Alexander Delmar was Jewish, he was he was a renegade Jew. He uh, criticized his own people for the way they, they treated money. And he did a lecture. I've been trying to get my hands on a lecture that he gave shortly before his death. And the title is The Jews and Usury. <laughs> the Jews and Usury. And so, but that, that document seems to have been scrubbed from the internet. Can't find any trace of it. And I'm surprised that this book, History of Monetary Crimes, is online. Anyway, this is uh, the website is, is heritage-history.com. Or if you just want to get your own copy and you're not in our chat room to copy it, uh, just type in Barbara Villiers, History of Monetary Crimes, by Alexander Del Mar. Now, you probably don't even have to cite the author, but Barbara Villiers, History of Monetary Crimes, should get you there. And this is a free copy of the book. So, first chapter, The Crime of 1666. From the remotest time to the 17th century of our era, the right to coin money and to regulate its value by giving it denominations and by limiting or increasing the quantity of it in circulation, was the exclusive prerogative of the state. The government. That 
prerogative and power belongs to the state, not to private banks. However, we'll see how private banking took over the currency supply of Britain and created the Bank of England, of course, the Federal Reserve Board, because it's not federal, it's not a, there's no reserves, and it's not a bank. The Federal Reserve Bank is a issuer of currency, not a lender of currency. Actually, what they do, the Federal Reserve simply purchases the money printed by the Treasury Department for the printing costs, and then circulates that money to the various branch banks of the Federal Reserve System. And those banks are the ones that lend money to the commercial banks, which lend money to the public and to businesses, etc. That's how the system is set up. But the Federal Reserve Bank controls the issuance of money, which is a, a crime in itself. Okay, a Woodrow Wilson signed it into law when there was not a quorum... In 1913, the a day or two before Christmas, when none of the legislatures were around, they were at home. So the, the, the few, there might have been like five or six legislators around who voted for this, and, uh, and Woodrow Wilson signed it. Now, he, he should not have signed it because it was not a true quorum. But uh, you know who was pressuring him to sign it, and you probably heard me talk about the um, the Mary Peck affair and how he got uh, inveigled and blackmailed because he had an affair with her while he was married to his wife and while she was married to her husband. Okay, so uh, and I think that whole I think he was set up. I think more Henry, not Morgenthau. Uh, Samuel Untermeyer, a Rothschild agent, was the one who arranged for all that. Yeah, Samuel Untermeyer blackmailed Woodrow Wilson and said, if you don't sign these bills, yeah, we will expose your, your highfalutin lifestyle. Okay, And in those days, uh, Wilson couldn't get away with anything like that, although in, Clinton was kind of the, like the modern Woodrow Wilson having affairs all over the place. But because the Democratic Party... Uh, approves of having affairs and you know, corrupting the government. Nobody paid any attention to Clinton's affairs. Okay, he got away with it. Uh, Jew-free. Got away with it. Jew-free. All right, so, okay, the state is supposed to control the issue and control the money supply. And that is the way it is supposed to work. In 1604, in the celebrated case of the mixed monies... This prerogative was affirmed under such extraordinary circumstances and with such an overwhelming array of judicial and forensic authority as to occasion alarm in the moneyed classes of England, who at once sought the means to overthrow it. These they found in the demands of the East India Company, the corruption of Parliament, the profligacy of Charles II, and the influence of Barbara Villiers. Okay, this is why in the book of Revelation... The fractional reserve banking system is, re- is referred to as a great whore that rides upon all the eight beasts of the book of Revelation because it is, number one, they use the services of prostitutes, that is, whoredom, to institute these banks, 
And then once these banks are instituted, they promote whoredom in the society. So this is why it's the great whore of Revelation. She rides all eight beasts, this great whore. And what this great whore really is, is the banker priests of the of international finance. That's what they are, the banker priests. Although today, the bankers and the priests are divided into two camps. The bankers are the Rothschilds and the Jew banksters. And of course, the rabbis, uh, they have separate offices now, but they totally work together to destroy the world economy. Okay. Yes, Congress is supposed to coin money and regulate the value thereof, which is what Alexander Del Mar is trying to say. Okay, very good. So let's continue. These they found in the demands of the East India Company. Again, totally Jewish-run company. Uh, responsible for the Boxer Rebellion because they were getting you know, the Chinese hooked on opium. Drug run, drug smuggling, uh, smuggling actually was legal in those days. Uh, but the, the corruption of China and India and Britain, America, etc., etc., uh, that's what these banksters specialize in. Because being able to create the money and spend it as they please, they can corrupt anybody. And if they can't corrupt anybody, they'll kill anybody. The result was the surreptitious mint legislation of 1666 to 1667, and thus a prerogative which, next to the right of peace or war, is the most powerful instrument by which a state can influence the happiness of its subjects, was surrendered or sold for a song to a class of usurers in whose hands it has remained ever since. Now, I'm amazed that this is actually written by a Jew. I don't think any Jew in the world has ever been so honest and forthright about the nature of the economy, although I don't think he uses the word Jew in this document. Nevertheless, he, he talks about the evil banksters and usurers. Okay, and again, since that act, it's remained in the hands of the usurers in not just Britain, but everywhere, except for possibly the Muslim world. But even the Muslim world uh, avails itself of loans from international bankers whenever they need it. Okay, so that they don't want to spend their own money. (laughs) They don't want to deplete their reserves of, of real money. So they'll borrow paper money. Okay, in any case, uh, they had to use the Federal Reserve note because the United States made a demand on them uh, to take our Federal Reserve notes in exchange for their oil. But then there was a, a, a backlash against that in the mid-70s. If you're old enough to remember the uh, gasoline shortage in the early 70s, the long lines, people waiting to get gasoline. That's because Nixon closed the gold window because they were supposed to get gold for their oil. And Nixon said, no, the the Jew banksters here in America ordered me to close the gold window. So now you have to take Federal Reserve notes. Now you have to take paper, which is actually worthless. But it's, it's backed by the good faith and credit of the United States of America, which has none, which has neither of those two things. Okay. So, 
let's continue. I mean, this is fascinating. It's absolutely uh, right, spot on. Truth told by a Jew. Okay. Okay. Uh, uh, it's sold for a song to the to class of usurers in whose hands it has remained ever since. In framing the American Mint Laws of 1790-92, Mr. Hamilton, a young man then 33 years of age, did he become a Freemason at the age of 33? And wholly unaware of the character or bearings of this English legislation, innocently copied it and caused it to be incorporated in the laws of the United States, where it still remains, an obstacle to the equitable distribution of wealth and a menace to public prosperity. Well, the information that I've had is that Mr. Hamilton, uh, he promoted a version of the Bank of England here in America called the First Bank in the United States, which Thomas Jefferson was totally opposed to, but because uh, well, he had, a, had married into a banking family after the American Revolution, and then he cozied up to the banksters. That's uh, so. I don't think he was unfamiliar or innocent. I don't think that at all. Anyway, more than this, down to the year 1870, the Crown of England had the right, without consulting Parliament, to undo much of the mischief occasioned by the Act of 1666 and its logical sequel, the Act of 1816. That is to say. The crown had the right and the power to restore the previous monetary system of full legal tender gold and silver coins struck by the state for the convenience of the public and the benefit of trade, and not as now merely upon the behest of the banking fraternity. In that year, this supernal power was surreptitious. He didn't say supernatural. He said supernal. This supernal power is almost supernatural because they can make money out of nothing was surreptitiously filched from the prerogatives of the crown. The evil work was then carried to other countries, especially to the United States of America, where in 1873 it was copied with a faithfulness to its model that could only have been born of design. Yeah, the Rothschild banksters who were over here trying to destroy our country. Upon the opening of trade with India in the 16th century, a pound of gold medal could be exchanged or purchased in Asia for six to eight pounds of silver metal, this being the ratio paid for bullion at the Indian mints. There was little or no silver in India, the natives of that country being ignorant of how to reduce argent- <laughs> argentiferous ores, that is, silver-bearing ores, argentiferous ores. Gold was comparatively plentiful, though it existed chiefly in the form of jewelry and other works of art. The currency consisted mainly of copper and billon, B-I-L-L-O-N, copper and billon coins. Not familiar with that word, billon. With a comparatively few gold pieces, the latter being chiefly used in and about the courts of the reigning sovereigns and the great commercial cities. Owing to these circumstances, the exchange of western silver for eastern gold became one of the chief sources of profit to Europeans engaged in oriental trade in 1540. Oh, sorry, period. In 1542, the Spaniards commenced shipping silver to China and India from Acapulco and Mexico by way of the Philippines. When the Potosi, 
or was it the Pelosi's? <laughs> when Potosi became prolific, these shipments amounted to 200,000 200, pounds a year. By this time, the value of a pound weight of gold in the coinages of India had been raised to nine pounds weight of silver. In other words, the coinage ratio between the silver and gold was nine to one. The British East India Company, formed in 1600, at once sought permission from the Crown of England to export silver to India. The policy of England had always been opposed to the melting or exportation of any portion of its measure of value. Penal statutes prohibiting such melting or exportation had been enacted in uh, many, many, many cases. He cites at least looks like a dozen here. Similar statutes were enacted by Henry II and Henry V. Such prohibition was still in force. It embraced not only the coins of the realm, but also those foreign coins, such as the Spanish reals, to which the English laws had accorded currency or legal tender function in England at fixed prices in English money. In accordance with this policy, Queen Elizabeth refused the request of the company although it apparently related only to the Spanish coins then circulating in England. However, permission was given them to import new silver from foreign parts, which silver might then be struck into coins at the mint for their special use after due payment of seniorage, with further permission to annually export a limited sum of the coins thus struck. So it was only limited to what the bankers could import, and then they were allowed to export it. The pieces fabricated under this ordinance are known as portcullis, P-O-R-T-C-U-L-L-I-S, portcullis coins, from the figures stamped upon them. They were of the same weight, fineness, and general design as the Spanish dollars, halves, and quarters of the period. This was in 1601, the coinage ratios at that time being 15 for 1 in England and 9 for 1 in India. At a somewhat later date, the company explored uncurrent English coins, chiefly the testoons, that is, shillings, and other base issues of Henry VIII and Edward VI, of which, though still legal tenders in Ireland, were decried in England and sold for old, metals, old metal. Such export, however, appears to have been without any express authority from the government. So, you know, what the uh, Jew banksters were after when you have this great disparity in exchange rates between Spain, you know, 15 to 1 in England, and 9 to 1 in India, well, if you send 15, uh, uh, let me do the math in my head here. If, if you send 15 of your silver dollars or silver pieces to uh, India, Okay, where you get, uh, and you, you, you only need nine of those in India to get one gold piece. So in England, you needed 15 silver pieces to get one gold piece. But in India, you only needed nine silver pieces to get one gold piece. So consequently, the Jew banksters would want to be shipping their silver to India pronto because they would nearly double their gold. At a somewhat later date, the company exported uncurrent Kirsch coins, English coins, chiefly the testoons, shillings, and other base issues, etc. 
1613, the company obtained a charter with extended powers. Now, here again, how did the company ex- obtain these powers? No, no doubt, with blackmail. That's always been the case with banksters. They induce politicians or kings and queens, mainly, mainly kings, maybe in some cases queens, to underwrite legislation which would give them the power to manipulate the economy. And that's what our Federal Reserve Act did. So this was going on all over the world by Jew banksters. And only Jew banksters, because only the Jew banksters were internationalists. Hardly anybody else at this era was uh, conducting international trade, although there were Jewish merchants who were conducting international trade in various goods like like silk and uh, you know commodities like tea. You know the British East India Company was involved in tea also. So internationalism is the, the oldest Jewish game, and they still are the uh, masters of it. Very very few non-Jews have any chance of getting into it. All right, let's continue. It made uh, several attempts to enlarge its privilege of export, one of which attempts was discussed in the Star Chamber, 1639, but without success to the company. With the downfall of Charles I, the company was almost extinguished. Its aggressiveness and avidity had procured it many enemies and rendered it so unpopular that in 1655, Cromwell annulled its exclusive privileges and declared the Oriental trade open to all Englishmen. Two years later, the company's influence with the Council of State was sufficient to induce the protector to renew its monopoly. Okay, this was Cromwell. All right, so, I, well, we know that Cromwell was bankrolled by Dutch Jewish bankers. And so maybe he, he opened the ownership of gold and coins to Englishmen just to curry favor with them. Maybe that's what he did. That's what I suspect. But uh, nevertheless, within two years, the Jews had their power back. Okay. And he was the one who was responsible for the execution of Charles II, which gave the Jews their Bank of England. Okay. Two years later, the company's influence with the new Council of State was sufficient to induce the protector to renew its monopoly. Okay, so the the, <laughs> the, the, the power given to Englishmen was taken away and it was monopolized by the Jew. In 1662... Charles II confirmed this renewal and for a corrupt consideration per, well, well, how, what, what kind of a corrupt consideration we know that Barbara Villiers was his mistress and she was consorting with various heads of state in the British Parliament and, uh, and the, the lords of England to compromise them so that they could be blackmailed. And this is how the Bank of England was created, through blackmailing and prostitution. 
So I, I just want to confirm in your mind the connection between prostitution and banking. It has always been this way, and it still is this way. They use prostitutes not now to establish banks, but to still blackmail people. <laughs> okay. Uh, Jeffrey Epstein, anybody? Mossad agent? That's how the Rothschilds use him. Let's continue. All right, so. For a corrupt consideration, permanently established this company of money changers, privateers, filibusters, and bullies. Now, I'm not sure what filibuster means here. I think it may mean... uh, Oh, what what is it? I'm going to have to look this one up. It's too important. It doesn't mean uh, a politician standing up before Congress for three days without end. <laughs> it means something completely different in this in this uh, setting here. Filibuster. Okay. Filibuster. No, that's that's the modern definition. Uh, a filibuster explained. Brennan said, "No, this is the the American." Now maybe it does have this sense. Maybe somebody was filibustering and holding up legislation in order for this corruption to take over. But uh, there, I think there's a, def- a definite, different definition of filibuster. Legislative practice, freebooting. The word is derived from the Spanish filibustero, freebooting, originally described pirate. Okay, so it's just another word for pirating, but I guess it's just a more sophisticated version of it. Okay, it comes from the Spanish word for freebooting, and uh, I guess it means the same thing, piracy. Okay, okay, filibuster was in use in the political sense by the mid-1800s. And, but we're still talking about, you know, somebody standing in front of Congress and holding up votes so that, uh, you know, that, that uh, an issue can't be passed, all right? So anyway, but I'm, I know that there's another uh, definition of the word filibuster that uh, is lacking in what I just read. But let's continue, okay? So, oops, oh, wait a minute. Oh, here we go. Lost the article. Here we go. I'm opening new windows, so I sometimes accidentally remove the one I'm reading from. Okay, so. Billineurs. The estates formerly consisted of the crown, the church, the lords, and the commons. To these were now added the financiers, or billineurs. Well, I guess it's a... Bullion, it's just uh, those who uh, have uh, the, possess all the gold, who have since almost entirely swallowed the others. Originally, now this is, what, 1800? 1800, this uh, late 1800s, this book was written. To these were now added the financiers or bullionaires who have since almost entirely swallowed the others. Originally, the financiers consisted of 215 monopolists 
under the title of the East India Company. I didn't know there were that many. They're probably all Jews and or their puppets. They now comprise the entire world of money changers and bankers. This cosmopolitan band threatens the peace of mankind. By cosmopolitan, he means the Jews inhabit cities and are not farmers. I propose in this treatise to relate at some length the history of their privileges and to indicate their mischievous influence. There is romance, (laughs) not to mention prostitution in the history and profit in the moral. Oh, I bet. Uh, Politics makes strange bedfellows and prostitutes in the same bed. All right. Second chapter, silver. Silver is rarely found in the form of metal, but chiefly as an ore from which the metal is obtained by complicated processes. Nor is the ore usually found on or near the surface of the earth, but mostly in quartz veins or in lodes and pockets which lie deeply buried in the recesses of metamorphic rocks. Hence, this guy knows what he's talking about. Hence, silver was the last of the two great precious metals obtained by man, and it could not have been procured in any but minute quantities before the discovery of iron and the fabrication of iron and steel tools of sufficient hardness to cut the rocks in which silver ores are concealed. As for, well, what do they do when they're, they're prospecting, you know, for nuggets? Yeah, they, they prospect for gold and silver in that way, I'm pretty sure. Never done that myself, right? Uh, so, but that's that's a different area of the world, so... And that happened, well, that, when was the, well, that was a gold rush. I don't know if there was ever such a thing as a silver rush because it's not, not that valuable in comparison to gold. But anyway, the point he's making here is very difficult to obtain from the ore. As for the suggestion that copper tools hardened with tin were sufficiently for deep mining, we leave the inventors of this hypothesis to account for copper and tin metal themselves in any great quantity prior to the advent of steel tools. The dependence of silver upon steel enables us to fix its era with some degree of certainty. The Indian Brahmo Buddhists, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, and the Greeks all agreed in assigning the invention of iron and steel to about the beginning of the 14th century BC. Now, the Egyptians had their gold mines also. I don't know about silver mines. Uh, Probably not because uh, from what he's saying here, you really need specialized equipment to, you know, you do something with silver ore. But gold is another story because Egypt had plenty of gold. So let's continue. The Greek date was that of Jasius and the 10 dactyles of Mount Ida, B.C. 1406. Interesting. 1406 B.C. is the very year that Joshua and the Israelites invaded Canaan land. And this year, 2024, the Day of Atonement is the 70th Jubilee from that date. Very important because the number 70 is the number of judgment. 
This date marks alike the era of iron metal and of quartz mining, whether of gold, copper, or silver. The earliest use of silver for coins must be assigned to the East Indians, who in their <laughs> Ramtenkis or Ramatankas employed a mixture of both gold and silver, called by the Greeks electrum. The earliest silver coins of the West were those of Phidon, king of Argos, who, according to the Parian Chronicle, struck them in the Isle of Aegina, near Athens, about B.C. 895, from silver, probably obtained in the mines of Lorium. The punched stator of Miletus, now in the British Museum, has been assigned upon artistic grounds to the period B.C. 800, but Mione contends that it is not older than Darius Histapes. The electrum coins of Lydia are of a somewhat later date. The mines of Laurium were situated near Cape Sunium, about 30 miles from Athens. The surface deposits probably contained some native silver. There is reason to believe from the archaic remains found at Tiryns and their resemblance to those of Byrsa, that is Carthage, that such surface deposits were originally worked by the Phoenicians, or the Israelites. However, this may be, the mines were certainly known to Aeschylus, Themistocles, Herodotus, and other Greek writers of the 5th and 4th centuries BC, at which last-named era the excavations were of some depth and the ores were of calamine and difficult to reduce. In the time of Themistocles, the annual produce of silver amounted in value to that of the metal in about a million dollars of the present <laughs> Okay, so the annual produce in those days amounted to about a million dollars of the present day. The systematic working, well, this is 1880 or something, the systematic working of these mines marks an epoch in the history of silver. It gave rise to that rivalry for the trade of the Orient, which led or kept up the wars between Greece and and Persia wars fought over money, right? Silver coins soon became common in all the Greek states, and specimens of them are still extant. The ratio of weight in silver and gold coins of the same value at this period in India was 6 to 1. In Persia, 13 to 1. In Greece, 10 to 1. In exchanging Western silver for Indian gold, the Persians made 100%. And the Greeks, 50% profit, right? So just by exchanging it uh, from, one, from one country to another, you can make tremendous profits, and that's what the bankers still do today. Their computers are set up to look at the exchange rates, not just of gold and silver, but one currency to another. And depending on what the exchange rate is between, let's say, England and India, you can make uh, make a profit just by making an exchange. And then when you're done exchanging them in India, then you come back and exchange them again in England. And you keep on making little profits this way without doing any work. And the computer does all the work for you. I guess somebody has to actually make the purchase, right? And But the, the, the stuff is not moved. It doesn't leave India. It doesn't leave England. It's just kept in vaults. And they don't even, they don't even move it from one vault to another. It's just uh, numbers on a computer screen. And that, this is how they make easy money. What a life, huh? What a life, folks.
This is the way. <laughs> okay, filibuster. West Indian buccaneer of the 17th century. Thank you very much. West uh, JT, thank you very much for that definition. Yeah, I knew it did not mean a politician standing at the pulpit holding things up, <laughs> right? So uh, uh, a pirate, a buccaneer, okay, just another word for pirate. Thank you very much, okay. All right, so where was I here? Okay, okay, very good, 50% profit. The use of gold and silver coins was not universal in the Greek states. The iron numularies of Sparta under Lycurgus and the numulary system of Clazomene and Byzantium were remarkable exceptions, which in this place can merely be mentioned, but which nevertheless, especially the first one, deserve the careful examination of all students of money. They serve to prove, if nothing more, that neither silver nor gold are indispensable for the purposes of money or commerce. However, today they are number one although you can be trading in vanadium and, and other you know more precious metals but uh, well i think what he's saying is well you don't have to have these coins to run an economy you can run it with paper money you can run it with uh, beads <laughs> right uh you can run it with poker chips whatever you, you can get people to accept in exchange for goods but nevertheless, because of their intrinsic value, silver and gold are, you know, precious in the sense of manufacturing, their use in manufacturing, and from that standpoint are indispensable. From a passage in Varro preserved by Carisius, namely that, quote, it is said that silver money was first made by Servius Tullius. There is reason to believe that the Romans struck silver coins at an earlier date than that mentioned by Pliny and that silver and copper coins were used for money down to the period of the Gaulish invasion. This system was abandoned in AU 369, that is BC 385, for numillary system consisting of highly overvalued bronze counters, which formed a distinguishing money of the Republic until BC 316, when the plunder of Magna Greca led to the issue of the <laughs> scrupulum coins of silver and gold at the weight ratio of 9 to 1. The capture of Tarentum in B.C. 271 led in B.C. 269 to a new coinage of silver and gold, this time at 10 to 1. Other coinages followed, which it is not deemed necessary to further mention in this place. So, it's pretty obvious that not just banksters, but governments were aware of how they could trade, exchange gold and silver in one market and uh, exchange it in another market and make a profit. But however, still you have to transport the gold from one market to another in this system. Today, it's just moved from one account to another and the profit is made. Okay, very streamlined. Other coinage is followed, which it is not deemed necessary to further mention in this place. Here began a new era in the history of silver. Down to this time, indeed, until the Roman patricians acquired such command of the state and its possessions as to render them the arbiters of its destiny, 
The Republic controlled the issues of its mint and regulated in the public interest their number and value. From the moment that Spain fell to Scipio, there arose a struggle among the privileged class to which that hero, hero belonged to control its silver mines and coinages. So at this point in history, that's when silver coinage and the silver metal and gold metal began to be highly valued, and rightfully so. But again, it's the governments that should control its minting and its value. The Iberian mines had been opened in ancient times by the Phoenicians and afterwards worked systematically by the Carthaginians, who were actually also Phoenicians. They were all from Tyre. They were so numerous and prolific that historical writers have with one accord assigned to Spain during the Roman era the same relative importance that is claimed for America during the 16th and 17th centuries. The control of the Spanish mines lawfully belonged to the Republic, but Strabo proved, and there are other evidences derived from the appearance of the private coins, technically known as coins of the Gentes, or Gentes, that shortly after the conquest of Spain, the patricians of Rome acquired control of the silver mines and the privilege under public regulation of coining silver. Okay, so that's why the Romans invaded Spain, to acquire easy money. So why sell stuff to Spain to, uh, and buy stuff from Spain when you can just take, you know, defeat it militarily and take control of the mines? The state still retaining and exercising the exclusive right to mine and coin gold. Okay, so they gave up that right on silver, but not gold. The Gentes coins were struck at the ratio of 10 silver to 1 gold until the time of Sulla, when their weight was reduced so that the ratio stood at 9 to 1. And this continued until the accession of Julius Caesar, when private coinage and meltage was abolished and the ratio was raised to 12 for 1. It was uh, the, the greater the difference in value, the more profit you can make trading coins. It was during the period from Sulla to Caesar when most of the Gentas coins, now extant, were struck. The silver denarius of this period weighed 60.6 English grains. Of these, 25 were valued at 1 gold aureus of at 168.3 grains. Hence, 60.6 times 25 equals 1515 minus 168.3 equals 9. I don't know how that math works. Which was the ratio between silver and gold between B.C. 82 and B.C. 45. From the accession of Caesar to the 6th century, the principal supplies of silver were obtained by Romans in Spain and as elsewhere by means of slave labor. That's why they, yeah, they basically mined it for free. These supplies were then materially lessened by the rising or invasion of the Visigoths, who in remembrance of the cruelty suffered by their kinsmen under Roman masters, peremptorily closed the mines of Spain and forbade their being worked at all. The silver mines of Hungary, Bohemia, Germany, Gaul, and Britain fell under the control of other barbarians. And though in the 8th century the Arabs conquered Spain and reopened its silver mines, 
The product did not go to Rome, but was employed in that new trade with the Orient, which the Muslims and Goths had inaugurated. Oh, oh, really, the Goths. The Muslims and the Goths had a, a new trade with the Orient. I wonder if they were working together. Substantially, from the 6th to the 13th centuries, the European supplies of silver went to the Muslim and Gothic traders, who swept the seas which encircled the continent and controlled the trades of the Levant, the Baltic, and the Orient. Well, I'm very curious to find out whether the, the uh, Goths and, and the Muslims were working together or not. Uh, there was, uh, they had to be trading with one another, but were they, because uh, the Muslims, they were sea pirates or filibusters, <laughs> as we just saw, uh, buccaneers. The weight ratio of value between the precious metals within the Roman Empire always remained where Caesar fixed it at 12 for 1. But the Muslims and Goths, without the Roman Empire, fixed it at 6.5 for 1, the same as it was in India. These two widely different ratios, the Roman and Indian, continued to antagonize one another in Europe with more or less influence upon the coinages of those frontier states, which did not fully fall within the sphere of either system until the introduction of Christianity into the Gothic states and the decay of the Muslim power in Spain, when the Roman ratio of 12 to 1 again asserted its ascendancy. This ascendancy was, however, but temporary. Rome itself fell in 1204, capture of Byzantium by the Latins and Venetians and the coinage of gold, which down to that time had been exclusively exercised by the Roman, that is, Byzantine sovereign pontiff, thus enabling him to keep the ratio unchanged, was usurped by every state that rose up upon the ruins of the empire. From the fall of Byzantium to the opening of Potosi in 1545, Europe witnessed every change in the relative value of silver and gold that provincial jealousy avidity, expediency, or necessity could suggest. Well, I guess every state would have uh, you know, uh, its vested interest involved in maintaining a certain ratio of value between gold and silver for their own purposes. Okay, so yeah, let's continue here. It's just uh, it, as long uh, I didn't realize the book goes so much into silver and gold, but it's a really good history. For 13 centuries, the ratio within the empire had remained steadily fixed at 12 to 1. It's a blah, blah, blah. Okay. And let's see. Where, where did that sentence end here? Okay. In 1567, the patio process was discovered. From this period commenced that new and latest era in the history of silver, which it is the purpose of this work to illustrate. In 1591, the Spanish viceroys in America were authorized to coin silver and to furnish such coins in exchange for silver bullion, upon which the king's fifth, or 20%, and other dues amounted to about 1.5% more, had been paid. In 1608, the viceroys were instructed to coin for private account and free of charge all duty-paid silver brought to the vice-regal mints, except when regard for the public interest rendered it in their judgment more expedient to cease coinage. This was practically unrestricted and gratuitous, but not yet unlimited coinage. So the coinage was still being done by private individuals. It is with this last-mentioned subject we shall presently have to deal. Meanwhile, 
It is necessary to mention the quantitative influence of gold and silver and to briefly trace the history of coining by machinery. Now, it's interesting that our Constitution says that uh, a dollar is 300, uh, I forget the exact number, 371.25 grains of silver. It's uh, A dollar is a weight, a weight of silver. It's not a measure of trade value. It's a weight of silver. And that's what a paper dollar is supposed to reflect, a, that weight of silver. And, but, of course, it doesn't reflect that anymore because you can hyperinflate paper money. You can't hyperinflate silver. In my article, Silver, in the Encyclopedia Britannica, 9th edition, signed A.D.E., I said that the greater rapidity with which gold can be obtained, as compared with silver, has often influenced the legal relation of value between those two metals. Of course it has. For example, when in 1668 the king of Portugal found that large supplies of gold were coming into his coffers from the Brazilian placers, he placers, he says, he raised the mint price of gold from 13 one-third silver to 16 silver. Hence the origin, for such was the origin, of this celebrated ratio was purely arbitrary and entirely opposed to the natural order of things. Silver did not fall owing to plentifulness, nor gold rose owing to its scarcity. On the contrary, gold rose because the royal dues in that metal were so vast that the king of the principal coining country of that period deemed it worthwhile to raise its mint value in order to still further enhance the royal revenues. By the year 1747, the sporadic product of Brazil was substantially exhausted, and the king of Portugal, finding that his dues were now chiefly paid in silver, arbitrarily raised that metal from 16 to its former weight ratio of 13 and one-third for one of gold. But at this period, Portugal was ruined, and it did not much matter what the king did. The cause of her rise was the plunder of the Orient, that's referring to Portugal as a she, the cause of her rise was the plunder of the Orient and the exploitation of the Brazilian placers. The cause of her fall was the sudden exhaustion of these sinister sources of wealth. Okay. Now that's very interesting. I never knew that the the rise and fall of Portugal was based on the, the, the relative, you know, the the increase of the mining and the relative value of these these two metals. Now, of course, we know that any nation that indulges, you know, because all of these white colonial empires, once they begin race mixing, that's a, you know, a sign of their imminent demise. And that was true of both Portugal and Spain in this era. And earlier than that, uh, Greece and Rome because they imported non-white slaves to do their work, and they became fat, lazy, and stupid. And that's basically how, how history progresses. <laughs> okay, I guess that's true of individuals, too. We start out strong and grow fat, lazy, and stupid, and can't, can't even lift our own fingers the older we get. In all questions concerning coin, it must be borne in mind that gold has, in fact, obtained chiefly from, been obtained chiefly from placers, that for the most part the placers needed no capital for their development, and that for this reason also because placer gold is on or near the surface, the placers can be and always have been worked by a great number of people at once. Hence, this is, I guess you would call that strip mining, 
hence that they can throw and in fact have thrown a vast quantity of metal upon the mints in a short space of time. It is no answer to these circumstances that the known placers are exhausted or that there are no more placers to be discovered. Alaska is a recent and stubborn fact to the contrary, and until the entire earth, habitable or otherwise, is ransacked and washed over, the retention of gold is as as a measure of value exposes all the existing arrangements of men and things to disastrous revulsions. Okay, so the amount of gold and silver in circulation can uh, bring empires into being and can topple the empires once those reserves are exhausted. That's something that we, we know essentially. However, you know, it, it is in the interest, and I think that's why our Constitution says that to, to, coin, to coin money and to regulate the value thereof. So that, let's say we, there's all, all of a sudden there's 10 tons of gold discovered in California and they ship it east, and all of a sudden there's gold everywhere where there wasn't any. So the government has the authority to regulate the value of that gold, at least in exchange for other metals and for, uh, and, and I think the government therefore has the right to limit the amount of gold that goes into circulation all at once because that, that just disrupts the economy entirely. And so I'm going to go a little bit over today. Silver, on the contrary, is slow of production. The metal is locked up in the rocks, 28 cubic feet of which mining drives or galleries are usually 7 feet high and 4 feet wide, have to be excavated in order to bring to the surface one lineal foot of vein matter, which is rarely more than a few feet thick. A silver mine needs capital and metallurgical skill for its development, while only a comparatively few men can work in one simultaneously. So, very interesting about gold and silver. For these reasons, the production of silver has always been, and if not disturbed by legislation, would always be far more steady than that of gold. Its gradual demonetization is therefore without any apology either in the manner of its finding or production. As will be shown in the course of this work, it has been the result of intrigues which originated and have continued to emanate from the city of London, a place in which there are neither gold nor silver mines, but a plentiful accumulation of financial and commercial shrewdness. Very shrewd of him to say so. I would not have it inferred from these remarks that I prefer silver to gold for a general measure of value. Well, I think that the steady supply of silver and the fact that it requires a lot of labor to get it out of the ground would make it a more you know, stable commodity. And maybe that's why our Congress uh, defined a dollar in terms of silver. A general or universal measure of value is a chimera invented by the bankers of Threadneedle Street, he's talking about the Rothschilds, to foist their metallic scheme upon the world and render their city to the center of a system of cosmopolitan barter. A national, yeah, a national measure of value consisting of silver metal, free coinage system, is but little better than one of gold metal. No metal as such can measure value with precision or equity. This is what money alone can affect. And if there were no question of policy in the matter, I should advocate a monetary system independent of metals. 
But the monetary question is a practical and political one. We cannot ignore history. We cannot ignore the status quo. And as the status quo is a complex metal and paper system based upon history, law, and practical politics, the most that can be done is to reform it in the interest of the government, that is to say, of the people. There you go. For the present, I would advise a return to the coinage laws prior to 1873 and the requirement of banknotes to be replaced by greenbacks. Oh, wow, he advocated the greenbacks. These reforms will not only benefit the great mass of our people. Why greenbacks? Because they incurred no interest. No banker ever earned a penny from the greenbacks. These reforms will not only benefit the great mass of our people. They will save the commercial classes from what will otherwise end in the widespread bankruptcy and perhaps even more serious results. Oh, yeah, total bankruptcy of the planet. Unfortunately, the commercial classes are too greatly too greedy to accept reforms that do not promise them unfair advantages. Wow. Okay, and he's talking about his fellow Jews. He sure is. He sure is. Okay, so now we can see the the ratio between gold and silver is complicated by the fact that gold is so much more easy to obtain, at least because gold is more common up high. Now, I wonder why that is. Why is gold so much more common near the surface of the earth, but silver has to be you know, dug very deep? And so it looks like you're 10 times the amount of labor to required to mine silver is like 10 times that of gold. But gold has its higher value for other reasons. So... In any case, uh, I think that's probably why our Congress defined a dollar in terms of silver, because uh, silver is more steady in value. So good reasoning by our founding fathers. And, but the fact that our Congress, uh, our Constitution says that Congress shall issue and regulate the value of money is an extremely important statement which very, very few citizens of America today have any idea why it is, (laughs) why that is. And we simply accept the Federal Reserve note as if it always existed and as if it is a uh, a fair medium of exchange. Okay, so a couple of questions here. Seven, was the skill of the refining of silver perhaps lost for a while? Silver is spoken of in the Bible. Well, yeah, silver and gold are the money of the Bible, for sure. And if the Bible uses silver and gold as money, so should we. Now, I think for sheer speculation, let's say we had no Jew bankers speculating in gold and silver. And we just had people who, who on their own accumulate gold and accumulate silver. And they can trade it among themselves for whatever value they want to trade it for. But as long as you have both, and I would say the common people would have more silver. And as long as you don't allow major speculation to occur to devalue silver so that the common people couldn't uh, get as much value for their silver as possible, 
Uh, I think that's why the, the, the dollar is defined in terms of silver. I think the, uh, the founding fathers knew about the, this uh, ratio and how, how mining silver is more difficult than mining gold, and therefore it's more steady in value. Okay, and uh, uh, JT says, valid question seven. One day we will relearn how to move these several hundred ton perfectly cut blocks and build a monolith, probably a reference to the Great Pyramid, right? And seven says, silver is often a byproduct of gold mines. Okay, very good. But apparently it's still a bit much more difficult to extract from the ground. So some nuggets of information here, folks. Some gold and silver nuggets today. All right, so that explains. Now, of course, the main lesson to be learned from today's show, and I'm going to, I think I'm going to read through this whole book, uh, is that by changing exchange rates and by manipulating exchange rates and by taking advantage of exchange rates from one market to another, you can, you can profit simply from the exchange without having to do any work. Now, in those old days, because we're talking about India and England, where the exchange rates were markedly different, you still had to physically take the gold and silver from one place to another to make the exchange. Nevertheless, it was still a profitable enterprise. You just had to send your men on a ship with the, with the gold and silver to make the exchange. Today, it doesn't require any, you don't have to leave your computer, <laughs> your computer terminal, because our money today is digital, and they purchase gold and silver with digital money, which has absolutely no value. But as long as it's tied to the Federal Reserve note, uh, what, by the way, Bitcoin is tied to the Federal Reserve note also because people who use Bitcoin at some point have to exchange it for real money unless they're dealing with another person with Bitcoin. But if you want to buy some lumber with your Bitcoin, you can't go to Home Depot. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe there's some Home Depots that will take Bitcoin. I, I don't really know if they do that or not. But at some point, you have to convert it to real goods and into the uh, realm, the coin of the realm or the medium of exchange of the realm. All right, so we do not want central bank digital currency because that can be inflated uh, infinitely and nobody can measure its value. Only the bankers themselves will know what value is because they can control it entirely. And that's why the bankers prefer paper money to gold and silver because they can determine the value of the paper money just by how much they issue. And you can't do that with gold and silver. It's much more difficult to you know, fluctuate the value of gold and silver because it can't be inflated. Period. It can't be inflated. And that's why the bankers want paper money because they love to inflate it because they're the ones who, sp who spend it into circulation or loan it into circulation at whatever rate they please. Government has nothing to say about it. And the American people actually believe that the president appoints the head of the Federal Reserve Board. No, that's just a show. That's just the, the Academy Awards of Banking. <laughs> Whenever our president supposedly 
appoints a new head of the Federal Reserve. No, that person is pre-selected. In fact, the president is selected by the Federal Reserve Board. That's really the way it works. All right, folks, thanks for listening. We need to be educated about money, what real money is, and how we are being cheated. At this very second, the money in your wallet is losing its value because the Federal Reserve Bank is inflating it so greatly. Thanks for listening. Praise Yahweh. Pass the ammunition. Take care, everybody. And do we want to hear some more from Klaus Schwab? <laughs> Let's hear some more from Klaus Schwab. We own you. You are the puppets. We are the puppeteers. People are waking up. That's the good news, folks. Thanks for listening. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.